I'm going to maintain that the best anglers out there focus on fundamentals and understand that fish are fish regardless of where they swim. We're going to talk about that on this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. I'm Chad Lachance, and you're listening to Fishful Thinker, the podcast. All things fishful, all the time. Hey guys, Chad Lachance here. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. If I sound a little bit energized, it's because I am. I just got back from Florida. Uh, it's February. I try to go to Florida every year in February and March and, uh, and do some fishing down there, get warm, get my act back together. I'm a Florida native and, uh, and it always feels good to go get warm when you live here in Colorado. And even though we have real nice days, 60 plus degrees and all that, uh, here in Colorado in the wintertime, it's still just not the same as going getting warm and tropical and all that. And, uh, and so that's what I went and did. So uh, first thing I did when I got to Florida was get off the plane and go to my local sportsman's warehouse uh, there in Florida. I had not been to one of the saltwater stores. was happy to see how, uh, how they had that thing reasonably stocked. And I only needed a couple of things, so I bought them. And speaking of sportsman's warehouse, they're, of course, the reason this podcast exists. And uh, would love to have you guys stop by and check them out. Visit them at sportsmans.com or any one of 142 stores nationwide. So back to my story. I flew to Tampa. And, uh, and then left from there, rented a car, traveled with a friend, and, uh, and we went and traveled around uh, basically up and down the, the central west coast of Florida. And this was not a fishing trip. I want to point that out first and foremost. If you're a fan of Fishful Thinker, you know we normally go on straight up fishing trips where I'll pack for days on end of tackle and I'll carry a bunch of stuff and we'll get after it. Well, this was not. This was a visit Florida trip, be on vacation, go get warm, go look at some real estate. And oh, by the way, we're in Florida, so you have to fish. And if you're uh, listening to our podcast, you know we, we've done other podcasts about, about what I take when I travel on a simple trip like that, or maybe what you can take if you're going to the coast and, uh, and you're going to do some very simple fishing. And in this case, it's more of a follow-up to that podcast to tell you how it went and what details actually made me catch the most amount of fish. And the reason I feel like that these are worthy podcast uh, topics is because I get these questions via email a fair bit. And I think it's because some folks know I'm a saltwater, or a Florida native, I should say. Other folks know we've done saltwater shows. And I just know a higher percentage of you will travel to a coast somewhere to fish. And in my case, the southeast is where I'm most comfortable. I have, I have fished the west coast some, but very little, uh, typically way south. But, uh, but the, from, say, Louisiana around to Florida to Georgia, I've fished all that area a fair bit in saltwater. So, um, when I say I got off the plane, went to Tampa, first of all, I went to Cigar City and uh, had to go by there and have us a high lie. So uh, that was good fun there. But we left Cigar City Brewing and then left, went straight to Sportsman's Warehouse. And only thing I bought there, guys, was three-inch gold minnows. And that sounds really dumb, but that's all I bought was three-inch gold minnows. I bought like six bags of them, I think, while I was there. And I bought two colors. I bought the fire tiger color and I bought the smelt color. And those are the only two. And they're about as polar opposite. And that's why I bought those two colors. One's very bright and one's very natural. The fire tiger that, that they make in gulp minnows is uh, kind of a chartreuse and orange. Very, very, very bright color. And, um, and so I bought those two colors. And I bought some Fusion 19 8-ounce jig heads, swim bait heads. And the reason I chose those jig heads 
is because they have a heavy wire hook. That Fusion 19 hook is, is a beefy hook on the swim bait head. And when you're dealing with saltwater fish, if you use something like the Berkeley half head, which I most commonly use in freshwater uh, with the same three inch gold minnow on it, uh, it's a much lighter wire hook. And you run the chance of, of hooking a big snook or a big redfish and have them straightening the hook. That's never gonna happen in freshwater. Uh, I've never had a, a hook you know, not be stiff enough in fresh water on one of those Fusion 18 half heads, but for sure in salt water it could. So I bought the swim bait heads, which are the same weight. They just have a beefier Fusion 19 hook in them. And so I bought those. I bought eighth ounce and quarter ounce jig heads, and I bought three inch gold minnows, like I said, about a half a dozen of them. The only thing I brought with me are some saltwater zooks and like two saltwater jukes, which are uh, kind of a hybrid jerk bait. They're not really a jerk bait. I'm not sure what you'd even call them. They can be a twitch bait, but they only run just right under the surface. They don't run with any depth at all, which makes them excellent in the flats. And they're very erratic, which makes them great for generating bites. So I brought two of those with me. And again, I brought a very bright color and a very natural color. And then I brought a couple of hit sticks, uh, number 11 hit sticks. And I did the same thing with those. I brought one real bright one and one real dark one. And that's it. So I mean, we're literally talking about four lures and some bags of gulp and, and a dozen jig heads total. So not much tackle. The other thing I bought while I was at Sportsman's was some 30-pound uh, fluorocarbon leader material. I buy Prospect fluorocarbon uh, leader, and that is a bite leader. In, this, in the particular case of saltwater, you're dealing with fish with teeth or gill covers uh, that will cut leader material, or they'll rub their face on barnacles or oyster bars. And so the leader is good for that. And my leader is the same exact as I would run in freshwater. It's somewhere between, say, 10 inches and 20 inches long, no longer than that. I tie it off with a, with a double uni knot. And then I put a loop knot at the bottom on the jig. And the reason I do that, I use a perfection loop. And the reason I do that is that leader material is very stiff. And so... It's great for avoiding bite-offs and getting your line broken, but it's not so good for jig action. When you're only talking about an eighth-ounce jig, if you tie that thing with a knot that snugs, it will have almost no action of its own. So putting a very small, I make a loop knot, and I make the, the loop as small as I can possibly make it, so like an eighth-inch diameter, just enough to let the jig swing free is, is my normal deal there. Uh, I had 15-pound x5 braid and i brought two rods with me and that the braid the 15 pound braid was on both and they were on um pen pursuit reels and the reason i use pen reels for saltwater if you're a fan you know i, I throw abu garcia stuff that's what i do but in saltwater situations Pen makes a reel with a bigger drag surface, a little bit beefier handle to it, and fully sealed with no anti-reverse or no selectable anti-reverse. In other words, the reel itself is sealed up and the anti-reverse is permanent. You cannot turn it on and off. That leads to a more reliable reel and also the corrosion resistance in pens. They're, of course, a, a saltwater-specific brand and they do a great job with corrosion resistance. So when I'm going to saltwater, I choose pen reels typically over most of my Abu Garcia reels uh, just for those reasons. So that's what I brought. And then I had a couple of 15-year-old inshore-specific saltwater rods that are three-piece. And they've literally been in my garage for 15 years. Um, and I brought those with me. And the reason being is they're three-piece, which means they fit my standard luggage. So I don't have to buy 
or carry a tube and buy an extra bag if I brought two-piece rods. And I'm not a fan of any more pieces than I have to have. So I have a couple of four-piece rods as well that are truly small little travel rods, but I don't like them in saltwater situations. Too many ferrules. I'd far prefer to have one piece, if at all possible, but I can't, so I go to the three-piece rod here. Keep in mind, these are saltwater-specific inshore rods. So if you're bringing freshwater rods, which you can certainly do, I would up the power a little bit. So I brought medium and medium heavy rods. And the reason for that is they're saltwater rated. So basically what that means is it's roughly the equivalent of um, a medium, like the what I would consider a medium light in freshwater, which I would normally throw an eighth ounce jig on, is too light for saltwater applications because the rod simply won't have enough backbone. So yes, you can throw the lure accurately and you can throw that little jig head around, great, but you're gonna hook a even a 20 inch redfish or something and he's gonna put a big old bend in the rod. So that's why the saltwater specific rods have more backbone, more meat in the middle of the rod, and it just gives you a little bit more strength when fighting the fish. It's also the reason that I have 15 pound braid, even though I'm only throwing an eighth ounce jig, it's all about the tensile strength. And the reason the X5 braid as opposed to X9 braid, which I would normally throw, is X9 has nine filaments, the X5 has five filaments that are braided, the key here is the outside diameter of the two lines is the same. So the filaments in the X5 are quite a bit thicker uh, each. There's only five of them, yet when you braid them together, they make the same outside diameter as when you braid nine of the other ones together. So the abrasion resistance is much higher on X5, and that's why I chose it. So again, for the oyster bars and barnacles uh, and things like that, you have to deal with. So that's really my setup. So I had the medium and the medium heavy um, inshore rods and then the pen pursuit reels. And both of them were the same size, size 30s. Both of them had the 15 pound braid. Both of them had 30 pound liters. The medium had an eight ounce jig with a three inch gold minnow on it. And the medium heavy had either the hit stick or the juke, which I had previously mentioned. And I threw those two depending on um, the scenario going back and forth. So that was my tackle. I brought with me, of course, a pair of pliers with side cutters that I always carry with me, the standard 7-inch aluminum Berkeley pliers that I always carry. And I brought a lip gripper. And the lip gripper is kind of like a boga, but it's plastic and cheaper and it floats. It's easier to carry, lighter to pack. Uh, and I brought that to deal with fish with teeth because there's a lot of fish with teeth and I knew I was going to be fishing either from the bank or from a canoe or kayak and to be able, I wouldn't have a net. And so to be able to handle fish, I wanted to be able to get a hold of something in the event that I caught something like a barracuda or whatever. For the record, I only use those lip grippers maybe three or four times on the whole trip, uh, but I was glad to have them. So that's all the tackle I brought. I weighed it. It was like four pounds total, um, which is nothing. I took the rods out of the tubes they come in from the weight standpoint and wrapped them in my beach towel, which I bring to Florida anyway. And so I wrapped them up real good, rubber banded them, put them in the middle of my suitcase, and they made it there just fine uh, without having to buy extra luggage. And I'm telling you all of this, guys, because if you want to take an opportunity trip, really the only thing you need is the rod, and the, the multi-piece rod. I'm sure you already have everything else. I'm just giving you a rundown of what I purposely bring. And I travel to Florida relatively commonly, so this is a setup that's been heavily tested. So any rate, so I'm down to 8-ounce jig heads, 3-inch minnows, and a couple of hard baits, and that's it. So how did I actually catch fish? How did it go? 
So the first place I stopped to fish was an intercoastal area with heavy current. Current just ripping through there. And uh, water's relatively clear. It was an incoming tide. I was right inside the mouth of an inlet. So the water was was blue, like you would envision for ocean water, especially because of the incoming tide. And so I fished there a fair bit, uh, maybe 20 minutes worth. Did not produce a bite there. I ran the hard baits high in the column, did not produce a bite. Then I, and, and I want to point out the column here, the water column is maybe eight feet total. It's maybe eight feet deep at the most in this particular section of the intercoastal. Uh, should be somewhere between six and, and eight feet. And high in the column got me no love at all. Then I put a jig down and started snap jigging and I got one bite and that was it. And then there was another guy who was drowning shrimp doing the, the bait and weight thing, which is far more common in Florida, infinitely more common. And he caught one fish, and it was a small catfish. And it occurred to me that, okay, there's just not a bunch of fish around right here. So I left. Uh, the next place that I fished, we had made it to a VRBO. And there I had access to uh, a couple of canoes and kayaks. And it was an inshore area with a creek that runs out um, boils out of the ground, basically, like as, as happens all over the, the west coast of Florida. Um, basically, it's a cenote or a freshwater spring that is inshore, maybe a mile from the coast, and it boils out of the ground at 71 degrees all the time, runs down the river, uh, picks up other stuff, and then out to the coast. Depending on which way the tide is flowing, that water is either flowing really fast or not as fast because when the tide's coming in, it will push up against it, slow the tidal flow down for one. And then for two, the salt water will push in. As the tide comes in, the salt water will push farther up the river and it will allow some of the saltwater fish to push their way into the river riding that tide of brackish water. And if you haven't witnessed it, it's, it's a cool thing to see because when the, when the tide's going out, in the case of these, these springs that are just barely inland from the Gulf, um, when the tide's flowing out, the water's really ripping, and it's, and it's noticeably clearer because the water boiling out of the ground is crystal clear. It's filtered by limestone, and it is crystal clear. And this, it doesn't have enough time in terms of, of distance uh, of flow to really pick up a lot of tannin like it does in some of the other rivers in Florida where by the time it's a mile or two down, it's very dark and, and, and heavily tannin stained. In this case, the river out of the creek I was in was only about a mile from the spring to the coast. So it was clear all the way down when it was running out. And then when it pushed in the other way around, the area of the coast I was on has darker colored water as well. I was in, I, at this point I'm north of Tampa, Florida. Uh, and that dark coastal water was pushed up the river, so it got actually darker in the river, and I could visually see how far up the salt water was pushing up the river. So that gave me an opportunity to know where to fish. So that's one of the tips I'll throw out there. You're looking always at watercolor, and if you see a change in watercolor, you know something's going on right there, and it's a matter of what is going on. In this particular case, I could see that the water pushed in on the tide was darker colored, and that's where it was mixing with the fresh water coming down the river, and that's where I started fishing and fished from there downstream because the saltwater fish aren't likely to push into the clear water, and those are what I was targeting. So 
The full highest tide is when I went out first because that gave me a chance to see if I could get fish pushed up against the edges of cover, which they will commonly do. They'll get up and around mangroves. And the species I was targeting, just based on knowledge of where I was in Florida, would be snook, redfish, sea trout, uh, maybe sheephead, maybe pompano, maybe flounder, um, in terms of all the fish that are typical sport fish. Plus, I knew there would be some jacks around. There's always some jack crevels around, maybe some ladyfish, and maybe some mackerel. So that's kind of what I was keying on or was anticipating catching. And so I knew at the very high tide, I could count on the fact that the snook and the redfish would push up under the edges of the mangroves and, and do some feeding in there. And if you're not familiar with mangroves, their root structures really, they're above ground. The tree actually grows kind of above the water and the root structure is all spread out and has a really... Um, I don't know how you, what you even call it, but they kind of all braid together and they're full of, of barnacles and mussels and crabs and all kinds of stuff like that. And when the tide goes down, it dries mostly out. When the tide comes up, the area we were in had about a three, three and a half foot tide swing. When the tide came up, it would flood all that in and that's where snook and redfish will go. So I went out on that tide for two reasons. One, I thought it might position the snook and redfish under the mangroves where I could anticipate they would be. And two, uh, it was safe from boating around. I could see where, uh, when I'm moving around, if I know where the high water is, I figured, okay, I'm not gonna run, run into maybe as much shallow water doing that. So what I found out pretty quick, uh, and again, just problem solving this in case you run into the same thing. What I found out pretty quick in this particular case was the tide was a little bit higher than normal, meaning that it flooded uh, enough into the mangroves that I couldn't get a bait underneath them. And if you can't get a lure underneath those mangroves on a high tide, you're not going to catch much fish. And I've seen a lot of guys, you know, chum the fish out, you know, take a, take, take a, either shrimp or, or white bait, some kind of a manhaden or something, and try to chum to pull fish out, things like that. Um, that's not something that was available to me given the amount of tackle that I had for one. And for two, it's just not generally my MO. And I'm fishing in a kayak, I want to point out. So chumming was not going to be a good call. The other thing I found out was when that tide got high and slack like that, this water is mostly shallow with not really a lot of pinch points and there was no significant current flow. In other words, nothing to position fish. So it was only maybe 10 or 12 or 15% of the bank that I had available to me that was mangroves, but there was no current flow and I couldn't get a bait under the mangroves and I quickly surmised that all bets were off as far as catching snook and redfish and things like that. Now. I didn't want to get skunked, and I had a total of about two hours to fish on this particular outing. So I pulled out closer to the middle of the bay where the most pronounced oyster bars that I could see uh, under the surface of the water were a couple of feet under the surface. And I started working that hard bait, working the juke and the hit stick around right there and particularly the hit stick, and immediately started catching fish. I caught jacks and ladyfish uh, doing that, which is no shocker because... Those fish are very active type fish. They will roam around constantly, they swim at full speed all the time, and they'll grab any sort of a thing. So something fast and shiny, like my hit stick working full speed, is gonna get you a lot of bites. And on my first outing at this place, I knew I, I, knew I had basically a day and a half to fish. My first outing was on that high tide, and, and 
uh, in the middle of the bay, I was able to get those, those what I call active species to bite pretty easy, or pelagic species, the jacks and the ladyfish. Not species I'm targeting per se uh, as a goal when I go to Florida. I'm not generally there to go fishing for jacks or, or, or ladyfish. Having said that, I was on vacation in a borrowed kayak um, in the middle of a bay on a beautiful warm day, and I just wanted to get my string pulled. And so running that jerkbait around was a quick way to do that. Now, the funny part is that jerkbait only lasted about an hour because I want to point out that the hit stick is a freshwater bait. It is designed for freshwater fishing. And I'm the first guy to say that lures that get bites get bites, period. They get bites from, if, if it'll get bites from walleyes, it'll get bites from bass and sea trout and everybody else. And that's why I like the hit stick. But the problem is it does not have saltwater components on it. And the juke, which I also brought with me, Berkeley originally brought out in the freshwater lineup and I had success with it in salt water. And then they brought it back out in the salt water lineup and it's a much better bait. And the only difference really is that I have, it has much more upgraded split rings and hooks. And that doesn't sound like a big deal. Well, but here's why it's a big deal. Because the hit stick, which is a freshwater bait, has the normal split rings and hooks. Well, the first couple of fish, even though they weren't particularly big jacks, were already starting to stress the split rings out a little bit. And, uh, and I was watching, you know, keeping close tabs on that because if I do get a big snook or something to bite it, which is highly possible at any given point, uh, we don't want that failure. Well, sure enough, about three or four casts after I noticed the split ring was starting to fail, I hook one fish and while I'm fighting it, now I got another fish. And I get them to the side of the kayak, and then I realize that I've got about a two-pound jack and a two-pound ladyfish at the same time on the same hit stick, one on the front hook and one on the back hook. So I've got a mixed double going on, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get this mess in the boat. Well, fortunately, the fish solved that for me because they literally tore the hooks and split rings off of the bait altogether. So what happened is the split rings at both ends failed almost simultaneously, and the hooks were gone. So I got my hit stick back without any damage, but it needs hooks and split rings. And note to self, if you're going to take them to saltwater, upgrade the hooks and split rings, which is the difference between the baits and the Berkeley hard bait lineup between salt and freshwater specific baits. And that was a something I knew I should not have even been throwing it without upgrading the hooks and split rings, but I did, and I paid for it. That's the end of the story with the hard baits, because the rest of the trip, because I was catching only the active species, the jacks and the, and the ladyfish on the hard bait, I figured out really quickly that that wasn't going to be my deal. And so I, I beached the boat. Um, go get some lunch, come back. Now the tide's running out and it's running hard. And I, actually it was slack high when I, when I got out of the boat and it was just turning to go out when I got back. I went and ate a quick lunch, put the kayak back out and now the tide's running out and it's ripping. It's running hard. And the saltwater had pushed in well above where uh, the VRBO I was staying at was. And so I was right in the middle of the tide turn where the VRBO was. And that current, lit the whole thing up and I knew it would and so I went right to the first 
oyster bar that I mentioned where I was catching the jacks and the ladyfish. And the reason that's important is because if the jacks and ladyfish are there, there's something to eat. Otherwise, they would not be there. So as that oyster bar is current running across it and, 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 is, and the current's going out and it's ripping hard across that oyster bar, it's freeing up stuff for everybody. So I eddied the boat out just downstream of that oyster bar and it was ripping enough current there that it was pretty similar to trout fishing almost. I mean, it was, it was blasting through this gap in the oyster bars and I started snap jigging that gulp minnow on the eight ounce jig head. And long story short, um, it started paying the bills for real. And when I mean snap jigging it, if you go to our YouTube channel, you can look up snap jigging. I have specific videos on it, uh, popping the bait hard and letting it go all the way to the bottom and just tickle the bottom. It is never sitting still on the bottom. It might not even touch the bottom, but I pop it up hard with an aggressive snap and then let it free fall on its own. And we're only talking about water a couple feet deep, so it doesn't have very far to fall. So it's a very active presentation. It's constantly in motion. Well, long story short, uh, snook, redfish, uh, pompanos, jacks, ladyfish, and snappers all started chewing up that gulp minnow. And all I had to do was keep snap jigging it uh, adjacent to wherever current was ripping around an oyster bar or any of the rocks I could find or anything like that. If there was not visible current, I didn't catch fish. And so there's current everywhere. Whenever there's tide flowing, right, there's going to be moving water to some degree. It's not like a lake or reservoir where it's very stagnant. It's running, but where it's visibly running, where you can see it ripping, that's going to concentrate fish. There's obviously a structural thing on the bottom of the bay right there. And in this case, it was oyster beds. And those oyster beds are raised because they're harder than the mud around them. And the mud erodes, the oyster beds don't. And it creates channels through them that the fish loved. And that snap jigging truly paid the bills on this whole trip. And why I tell you that? Why I decide that I need to post this whole podcast? Because here's the thing. I've said for a very long time that if an angler knows one technique and one only, if you're a guy who throws artificial lures at all and you need to know one or you want to know one technique, learn to present a finesse jig. I have said that forever. An eighth ounce jig with a three inch body of some sort, a tube jig, a, a marabou jig, a gulp minnow, a curl tail grub, something like that. But a, an eighth or a quarter ounce jig head and down and learn to present that well, and you can catch everything. And this particular trip was a very classic example of that because it's, the longer I kept that gulp minnow in my hand on that 8-ounce jig head and stayed away from the hard baits, the more fish I caught on this particular trip, and that is very, very common. More importantly, I was able to catch the active fish, in other words, the jacks and the ladyfish, just by keeping the jig even higher up in the column, working the deeper parts of the bay, and then I was able to catch the snook and the redfish and the snappers by staying very hard close to structure and fishing very tight to that structure. And so it became a selective thing. And, and that's also not typically a surprise. If I want to catch snook, I want to be around some sort of hard structure most of the time. I don't see them just out in the open in the same way you don't see largemouth bass out in the open per se. It's not to say you can't catch them on a sand flat or a beach somewhere. Obviously you can. Snook particularly will roam down beaches. But if you're talking about backwater areas and bays 
oyster bars, seawalls, docks, mangrove edges, uh, all the same stuff you would look at if it was a largemouth. If you're a largemouth guy and you're, you're talking about going to Florida on vacation, just literally look at the bay as though it's a, a, a bay full of largemouth and where am I going to go attack them? And the, it's that you're going to catch them that way. Redfish to some degree as well. And so it's a very um, almost universal thing to look at when you're talking about fish that will roam on hard structure. And that's exactly what snook redfish uh, will do commonly. And that three-inch gulp minnow seems like such a small bait. You think, well, man, it's just too small for saltwater fish, and but it's not. And I've caught everything from groupers to to sea trout on, on three-inch gold minnows. It's huge. And in fact, I was with a fishing guide one time outside of Sarasota. I needed a boat. And the boats were so expensive to rent, it wasn't hardly any more expensive to take the guide. So I just went out with a guide. We didn't catch any fish for like four hours. And we were throwing big baits and live baits. And the live baits weren't getting any love at all. The, the big lures weren't getting any love. I finally had to talk the guide into letting me tie on my own three-inch gulp minnow on an eight-ounce jig head and ended up catching a 32- or 34-inch snook that day. Uh, and that was the only one we caught, and I caught him on the three-inch gulp minnow. And the reason about that is it's just, it's like a potato chip. If I put one of those in front of you, you're going to eat it. It's not committal. You don't, It's like you're, I'm going to have to eat this whole giant steak. It's one little bite of food that you can eat. And opportunistic fish will do that and... And also fish that are feeding will do that and everywhere in between. So snap jigging that little goat minnow around in that bay around the current proved to be the most successful thing I did on the whole trip. And also I want to point out that the, the current started to slack out a little bit. And I moved back to the middle of the bay on a little bit later that same day. Once the current slacked, all that current that was ripping through those gaps in the oyster bars, the tide had gotten almost down to the to the lowest area, which means when the tide bottoms all the way out, if you know where there's any deepish water around there, that's also a good place to fish. And I surmise that I might catch a sea trout in there or maybe a flounder because the tide had bottomed out and there's one area that had maybe three or four feet of water still in it that I had, and you can see the bottom. I want to point that out as well. Particularly on the outgoing tide, you could see the bottom. And so I could see the depth. So I pulled out there and started fishing around, snap jigging right there, thinking maybe I would pull up a flounder or a sea trout. And lo and behold, ended up catching a pompano. And pompano is one of the best eaten fish. They are absolutely delicious. Uh, they fight like crazy for their size. They, they're stronger than a Jack Carvel if you ever caught one of those. Uh, I, I mean, a three-pound... Pompano would pull a three-pound smallmouth around like he was a joke. It wouldn't even it wouldn't even be close to, to set the stage. So I caught this little pompano. It was maybe two and a half or three pounds. Beautiful fish. Caught him on a gulp minnow, and it turns out that species number seventy-nine on my gulp minnow. So it ended up being a fun trip all the way around. But the biggest keys and why I wanted to convey this to you is I kept it so ridiculously simple that it was fun and it just reiterated to myself even how keeping it simple and focusing on fundamentals uh, and the fact that fish are fish was really important. It doesn't matter where you're fishing. If you're dealing with fish that are, that are you know, ambush feeders, uh, and structure-oriented fish like snook or redfish, then go find good structure. If you're dealing with roaming fish, uh, for instance, say white bass in freshwater, well, that's similar to fishing for jacks in saltwater. So, but the fundamental thing that doesn't change is big fish eat little fish and that little gulp minnow. Very, very simple. But it's all about the action. You've got to snap it and keeping it moving. 
you can't let it sit on the bottom or it's constantly snagged or it won't get bites. You, you've got to keep the bait quick and erratic and pay attention to hook setting and all of those fundamental things. If you do that, you don't have to carry squat for tackle. By the time the trip was over with, I went through two total bags of gulp minnows and I caught, I don't even know how many snappers and jacks and ladyfish and snook and redfish and even a pompano. And I went through two bags of gulp minnows. I lost a grand total of three jig heads in two days and tore up that one hit stick and that was it and I caught all kinds of fish so you don't have to carry a lot of stuff you don't have to change lures 25 times you just need to focus on fundamentals and where you put the bait casting angles and all that stuff it doesn't matter if you're in inshore or uh, in you know freshwater wherever it is you live so I appreciate you tuning in. Sorry we got a little bit long-winded, guys. Had a really fun trip, and uh, and I just feel like it's information that reiterates the the importance of being able to work a finesse jig and, and understanding how a snap jig situation works and confidence in a particular bait. So if you guys want to join the conversation, please do so at Fistful Thinker on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. Also, uh, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're putting a lot of effort into that these days. Got a bunch of new videos about to go up there, and we'd love to see you guys check that out, and also hope you'll tune in and see what we're up to at Fishful Thinker on Altitude Sports Entertainment and World Fishing Network. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Fishful Thinker, the podcast. <laughs>